Okay, so, confession time here. I just saw Triple X like five days ago. First time. Never seen it before. What? That movie's like 15 years old, isn't it? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> and also, why? <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, it's okay. Like, it, it was fine. Well, I'd always heard. But, I mean, that's. They have all these Triple X movies, and I'd never gotten to see one. Well, it was on well, there, and I was well, like, well. hey, it's like Triple X. I've heard of that before. And then at some point, spoiler alert. He jumps off of something with a like an American parachute. I'm like, this is the American conception of James Bond right here. <laughs> Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Orientalist Express podcast. This is the show that brings together young professionals from all around the world to discuss topics related to the Middle East, American foreign policy, and international relations. The goal of this project is to make American foreign policy easier to understand for people who don't normally follow it too closely. I'm Nicholas Hayen, the founder of the Orientalist Express blog and website. Joining us today in the virtual studio is just one of our usual contributors, Stephen Howard. Guten Tag, mein Freunds. Be sure to check out the official Orientalist Express website at orientalistexpress.com to read more about the team. Since the end of the Cold War, the world has basically taken for granted the idea that large-scale military battles between giant opposing armies is essentially over. We're all talking about economic, cultural, and information warfare as a means for one nation to dominate another, and this certainly seems to be the default means of conflict in the future. But as we remember this month, the 100th anniversary of the end of the First World War, the so-called Great War, or War to End All Wars as it is called, we are reminded that great and terrible armed conflicts can happen to even the most seemingly civilized nations. After all, nearly everyone in the early 1910s thought that global warfare could never happen because, quote, the weapons of war are too horrific now, or all these nations are so economically dependent on one another that they couldn't possibly break out into conflict. Sound familiar? So on this episode, we'll discuss the prospects of World War III and what that might look like. Stephen, you want to go first? Well, I want to start with the uh, RAND report that everyone is called. It's a sobering RAND report. RAND is the uh, Research and Development Corporation that the United States uses to, I guess, uh, farm out a lot of its thought processes. It's a really, really important think tank, but sometimes out of context, these reports can go absolutely crazy. And this is what happened with this new RAND report saying the United States might conceivably lose its next war to Russia or China. Now, this is basically saying, as everyone has taken it, oh gosh, oh gosh, we're all going to die because they can win against us and we can never, we're, we're not a superpower anymore and we need to ramp up our military spending. Which, if you read the report in the context of American hegemony over the world and kind of skim only the report, yeah, that makes sense. Really and truly what the report says is that if the United States faces a two-power war versus Russia and China, there are certain situations in which they could have a military edge over U.S. forces and the United States may conceivably lose, which... You're thinking about, what, Russia's the number one biggest country? I think China is the number two biggest country. Only Canada's number three, and we're number four. But you combine Russia and Canada, that is a lot of land space. They are across the ocean from us, so you have the stopping power of water involved. And you know what? Yes, it is conceivable that the United States may lose in a war against two superpowers, well, a conceivable superpower, and just due to the spread of our forces and the lack of uh, unity between our alliances. Because I think, Nick, you will agree with me that we are not on the best terms with our allies right now because they're not spending what they need to be spending, or so we are said. And so we don't have the, in my mind, the force magnification or the force multipliers of our allies involved in this fight. And yeah, in this case, we might lose. Really and truly what it says to me when you go through this report and it says, yes, the U.S. could potentially lose the next war to Russia or China. The things that 
outcome salient to me is that one, we need to reinforce our alliances across the world because that is our first force multiplier. We cannot go forward in the world just by ourselves. We are not a hegemony really anymore. That time has gone and passed. And the reason that that is is because long-term, economically, the United States isn't bigger than the rest of the world. It's just not. That's not something that's saying we're bad. That's not something saying we're good. It's just a fact. So if if you want to talk about this in terms of points, if Russia puts five points of effort into their war economy, China puts five points of effort into their war economy, the United States has to put 10 points of effort into their war economy to match both Russia and China and to keep them both satiated at this point if you're talking about a two-country two, uh, conflict. That's impossible to do economically. Russia and China are huge countries, as I said. China is the most populous country on Earth right now. They could outspend us eventually, and even if they can't outspend us, all they have to do is raise the uh, raise their spending just enough that it causes us to raise our spending. We outspend on military equipment in the United States, which, by the way, we were a hundred billion. I think it was a hundred billion over the uh, last deficit um, this year because of government spending, especially on military uh, matters. It's it's just impossible to do. I was I was just thinking. Um, I mean, I don't think that we should necessarily discount the force multiplier of our allies, though. I mean, yeah, sure, things are a little bit strained right now, but I mean, that's pretty much just because of one person, right? Like, I mean, it's it's only like sort of a leader to leader type of strain. The the governments themselves are still where they do cooperate. They're still cooperating pretty well. I mean you know, intelligence sharing, the five eyes, that sort of thing, all from what I hear seems to still be, um, you know, pretty solid. And especially if we got involved in an armed conflict, like a hot war with both China and Russia, or even one of the two, I mean, for one that triggers NATO Article 5. So there's definitely going to be some nations that are going to be obligated to help us. Um, but even if even without Article 5, even without NATO protection, I feel like a lot of those nations would come to our aid knowing if we lose, then then they have to start answering to China and Russia. And I think the vast majority of our allies right now would be terrified at that prospect. See, but I don't I don't necessarily agree with that because I believe that the zeitgeist in the United States is one that allowed Donald Trump to come to power and it is one that is more favorable towards a isolationist uh, mindset. So although, yes, Donald Trump might be an aberration in terms of the leader-to-leader foreign policy, I believe that you will be seeing a larger trend coming in the um, future of more isolationist policies from the United States, because whether you be Republican or Democrat, there's a large percentage of this country that wants to not be involved overseas anymore at all. And in reality, what are allies going to see when it comes to that? And it's kind of like the Montenegro thing that um, Trump talked about, right? Would we do we really want to stake a major war on Montenegro? Montenegro, by the way, is a NATO ally, and if they declare Article Five or invoke Article Five, like what Nick said, we are technically yes uh, supposed to come to their aid. But all binding documents are just documents when it comes down to the end of the day, and every country has to make the decision at that time of whether they are actually going to go to war or not. There has been talks in the European Union of building a independent now uh, military force for the European Union. I think that was headed by France. And just because they don't really trust the United States to defend them anymore. And if this comes down to a conflict over, say, the South China Sea, where for whatever reason in there are multiple reasons in the South China Sea that it could flare up into a hot conflict. Why would the European Union particularly want to become involved in a conflict in the South China Sea? Russia sees it as an advantage, as an opportunity, because uh, President Putin is incredibly opportunistic. That is his modus vivendi, and I mean, it works for him. But So Russia joins in on that side, and conceivably you then have a war where there are no European interests explicitly at uh, play, 
the United States might invoke Article 5. I Maybe there will be a couple countries that join us, but if you have these isolationist tendencies in the United States, they're exacerbated by isolationist tendencies in the European Union when you're talking about the uh, uh, hyper-nationalists that are coming to power in those countries. And you come down to the decision of percentages, right? Yeah, there's a 70% chance that they're going to join with us, but that also means there's a 30% chance they're not going to join with us. Yeah, and I think that part of this analysis sort of realizes, or I guess I guess I should say it um, sort of shines light on the the vast privilege that the United States has enjoyed since the end of the Cold War, right? I mean, right. that just now, the thought that the United States could lose, theoretically, could lose a war with two giant powers, and that sends everyone into an absolute frenzy. Um, the thought that, well, if you look at it from Russia or China's perspective, They've probably thought that for years now. They've probably thought for decades that, you know, if we got involved in war with the United States, we would absolutely lose. So um, in a way, it's, you know, it's not an ideal situation to be in. But at the same time, it kind of can lend you some idea of what the rest of the world feels, right? Because they're not in this privileged position. And so they have to take it essentially on face value when the United States says, we are going to protect you or you know, you're going to be okay, we're not going to invade you or anything. They just kind of have to believe that. Whereas we've always relied on, well, we know they're not going to because we could beat the hell out of them. So now the tables are a little bit turned. And, you know, of course, understandably so, we're very concerned about that. Um, But it's something to keep in mind that this is still very theoretical and not a very likely scenario since Russia and China don't really like each other that much either. Historically, they've had some very strong tensions and yes it's possible that they could put aside their differences and join together in some you know, great military conquest against the united states um but it's certainly unlikely well and i so i want to push back on a couple of your points there the first one being that russia and china don't ha- they do have historically antagonist and anta- historically antagonistic relations but over the past 10 years russia has become much more receptive of the I guess, uh, Chinese overtures for uh, their economy or whatnot. So I believe it was four or five years ago, the United United States, China and Russia entered into a technology sharing program, military uh, specifically. Um, There's a lot of wholesale sales being made of uh, Russian oil to China in return for Gosh, I'm not actually sure right now, but I know that the uh, Russians also sold plans for like an Su-27, I believe. That's a fighter plane. So there is there is more warmer relations between those two countries right now. I will say China definitely views Russia as the minor partner in those relations. Russia definitely, uh, <laughs> I think Russia still thinks it's a major player in those and uh, is a equal to China. And at some point, they're going to have to figure out that they are not equal to China. Um, so that might be one of the points of hubris that might get both of them into trouble. But I believe that they are both they both view the United States as the primary threat right now. And you don't have to, I guess, uh, you don't have to like each other to view if you have a common threat to join in the common threat. And that's I mean, the perfect example. That's World War Two, where the USSR, the United Kingdom, the United States came together to uh, battle off the, so, uh, the Nazis. That's <laughs> a friend. Uh, the enemy of my enemy is my friend, right? But the other portion of that is this entire situation. All is it's not without precedent. <laughs> in the United Kingdom in the 1890s, um, the United Kingdom had a theory that their navy had to be more powerful than the two greatest navies uh, combined next to them. Well, in the 1890s, even though there was still the British Empire, they really, it was impossible to keep that going. The United States was uh, was growing in the Americas, and that had a massive, massive navy. Russia was growing a little bit of its uh, navy. Japan was growing its navy. France still had a navy. Germany decided that they were just going to all out try to challenge the United Kingdom for naval supremacy. And so... The United Kingdom had no chance of being able to keep up in the naval arms race just due to pure economics and logistics. 
So what they ended up doing, and this is something that I think the United States could learn a lot from, is they turned to diplomacy. They diffused the situation, which were mostly over fisheries with the United States and uh, I guess a little bit of the Monroe Doctrine, basically conceding to the United States its sphere of influence in the Americas. It quelled its historically antagonistic relations with uh, Great Britain, uh, with uh, France, I'm sorry. And it also entered into its one of its uh, first peacetime alliances with Japan. Obviously, the alliance with Portugal has gone on for since like 1493 or something like that. But uh, this was one of the newest uh, alliances it ever got into. So it left it with Germany and with Russia as the only two remaining naval powers that it had to compete against. And obviously that, you know, kind of escalated into World War One, blah, blah, blah. But they had to accept that they did it was impossible for them to keep that fleet going. And that's what the United States at this point kind of has to accept is that navally uh, or naval wise, I do think that the United States has a absolute preponderance of power over the rest of the rest of the uh, navies in the world combined. That's, and that's going to be something probably for the next 50 years that we have that it's hard to build a Navy and it takes time to build a Navy and so even though China's trying to build aircraft carriers, Russia's trying to fix its broken aircraft carrier that it just said that it can't fix anymore, there's no way that they're going to catch up to us within 50 years. But when it comes to land power, air power, that's where we're, we're, we just we can't uh, embark on these offensive operations anymore, especially when you're talking about the South China Sea and what are termed as unsinkable aircraft carriers in the South China Sea. And that's like the seashell, or the seashells, I'm sorry. Yeah, the Spratleys, the, um, there's a couple. There's a bunch of different islands, uh, chains down there. And what China's doing is they're building air bases on these islands with A2AD, or anti-area, or anti-access area denial capabilities, which are, as I said, basically unsinkable aircraft carriers. You can bomb these islands, but you can't sink an island. And so it creates a string of pearls, how China kind of terms it, around their country to ward off anyone that tries to enter their, what they perceive as their area. You combine all these factors together and just comes out to the point where the United States just, it, we need to understand that we cannot be the sole superpower in the world anymore. And we need to understand that we've basically already de facto accepted that China has a sphere of influence in its own area because we haven't contested really how we should be contesting these South China, South China Sea Islands. Um, Russia, we're basically giving it a sphere of influence because we're really not pushing back against any of its efforts in the uh, in Ukraine. In uh, we let them roll over Georgia in 2008. Uh, their influence is growing in a lot of the stands again. It's, I don't know, maybe, maybe I am a negativist on this, Nick, but I just, I don't see this as a uh, long-term strategy that the United, the United States can win. This is something that we have to readjust, reappraise, and go, we can't keep up with this military spending that they're going to be doing. We have to move our focus to different areas, and we have to make our effort count in different places. Yeah, and I think I'm um, I'm a little undecided about the extent to which we should, um, you know, continue to defend like an open South China Sea, um, continue to defend democracies in Eastern Europe and things like that. Um, we certainly need to protect the core interests, you know, uh, Western Europe, that sort of thing, the traditional allies that we've had. Um, yeah, but I do wonder to what extent we could push back more against that. I guess. Um, so it sounds like you're not too sold anymore on the strategy of because isn't there uh, the United States's traditional military strategy has been um, that it should be able to successfully launch and win two simultaneous wars in two different locations across the world. And that that's basically what we've been trying to have that sort of military readiness for the past several decades. Um, A little bit. Do of you hubris. think that that is still <laughs> do you think that's still feasible? I mean, well, hubris, right? Cause yeah. We, you know, Afghanistan and Iraq happened at the same time. We can barely even keep up with that. It was Afghanistan and Iraq. No offense to those countries. But, but we won. 
we I won. Know. Well, it, technically, we did in a strict military sense, we won, but we lost in every meaningful sense. And that's kind of the point, though. I mean, if if you if you win in the military sense, if you bomb their cities into rubble, and then you just leave a power vacuum in its wake, you didn't really accomplish anything. You just set the stage for the next conflict in that exact same place. That's. I, yeah. We have such hubris when it comes to exactly what you said, the idea that we should be able to fight two major wars separately, win both across the entire world, anywhere in the entire world, especially when it comes to superpowers. Maybe that was feasible, and I think it wasn't feasible when it comes to, uh, I don't want to say minor powers because that kind of, you know, uh, is pejorative, but it's, it's definitely... Uh, it's hubris. It's hubristic, and it's impossible to uh, continue in the face of great power competition. And that's what we're entering a new era of, because China has risen, Russia thinks it's rising, um, India is kind of rising. You have countries across the world that are trying to exert their power over their perceived zone of influence, and they will always have uh, more power in that zone of influence than the United States will. And that just... <laughs> I don't know. I think we could win a war against China. I think we could win a war against Russia. I I hesitate to say we could win a war against China and Russia. So I just had a thought regarding, so if we were to win a war against both Russia and China, who's to say that, that that's the optimal outcome, right? Like, not that the United States loses and is invaded or some crazy thing like that, but a giant war of that scale would cause just untold devastation throughout much of the world and at the very least in whichever country it's being waged in and who, who's to say that that's actually the best outcome is is even getting involved in a war like that in the first place or saying that oh great the united states won technically in a military sense but but what does that leave would we actually be better off would the world actually be better off in that case and i feel like you know if we avoided that that theoretical war entirely um you know not completely dropped all of our weapons and just said, okay, you win. But, you know, if, if if we found a way to not have to get involved in all of that in the first place, wouldn't that be better? And if that does involve, as you say, ceding control of certain areas, I mean, I know that's probably anathema to many people in the military sense, but, you know, there is such a thing as a strategic withdrawal, right? Oh, yeah, definitely. And I, it gets back to what you're saying. If we get into these wars, when that's uh, China and Russia... It is World War Three, just like you said. That is that is basically World War Three because you have three of the four biggest countries on Earth fighting each other at that point. It's that's that's a lot of stuff. And yeah, and and I mean to yeah. the only way to prevent to truly prevent other nations from from rising and meeting the same level of military power as the United States is to just beat them into submission, and that's not necessarily a good thing either. I mean that's. That's kind of what, you know, other terrible nations have done in the past to their competitors. Yeah. Um, so it's not necessarily the best idea either. And if, if that's not open as an option, then, I mean, essentially we're left screaming at the tide to tell it to not come in, but it's, it's still going to. And that's gonna, it. And I know that there will be a lot of people that say, oh, well, we can always do like a Marshall Plan for Asia or for all the for the countries that we basically destroy. And I'd like yeah. to let everyone know that the Marshall Plan cost five hundred trillion dollars by the end of its you know usage. That's a lot of money. That at that point in time, well, it wasn't five hundred trillion dollars at the time's money, but when converted in today's money, it is five hundred trillion dollars. It is something that an incredibly powerful, incredibly robust economy could, you know, potentially deal with. That is not the U.S. economy at this point in time. And you're talking about countries that are even bigger than the whole of Europe. There's, <laughs> it would be really bad. And it would be impossible to, uh, impossible to rebuild these countries. Impossible, 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 I'd say. Yeah, and it's not that the United States economy isn't, good because it's pretty good right now mm -hmm. it's probably even one of the best in the world right now it's that at the end of world war ii the united states and the ussr were the only countries who even had a meaningful economy with which to invest mm -hmm. in i mean now the there's so many other options throughout the entire world that 
other people and companies can invest their money into, um, that that option just wasn't there. And so, you know, even if we tried some type of Marshall Plan for Asia and we needed that type of investment, other other companies, other nations could just go, yeah, I mean, I like the idea, but I can sell my product for way more in, you know, Africa somewhere, or my money's going to go a lot further in an investment in uh, Australia than it is in the United States. Sure. So I'm just not going to do that. And I mean, who's to even say that once you rebuild these countries, they come back as the United States has this absolute myopia with viewing democracy as the apex of what a country is without understanding that democracy is what the people who vote for the democracy think it is. And therefore, American style democracy is not what I guess you'd say Chinese style democracy would be. And this kind of happened with like the Tiananmen Square thing. If if they had gotten a, uh, for, for however reason, if the Tiananmen Square riots had led to a democratic Chinese government, that democratic Chinese government would in no way resemble a U.S. democratic government. So these countries that we're rebuilding, even if we rebuild them as democracies, who's to say they're even like, they, they would even be allies to the United States would they they would just they might just end up being antagonistic right after they get rebuilt and we have we're left in the same exact problem we didn't solve anything yeah we do have the unfortunate tendency of thinking that oh well we we gave them money we gave them democracy so they're going to love us in return right it's going to be all and that's just, values that's just that's just foolish it's just not not necessarily going to happen it happened in western europe because western europe was already culturally very much like the united states these other areas not so much but i think it's worth noting as well that after the marshall plan was enacted in western europe the majority of people in western europe especially in france hated it and they hated the united states for doing it makes no sense to me i don't understand it but it's when the polls were made of hey yeah they're giving you money and whatnot they're oh, we don't need American money. We can do this ourselves. And they're just jerks for going around. And we don't even want them here, especially the French. The French were really bad about this. And they were they were technically our allies. What, what's going to happen when these countries aren't our allies? Getting back to what you were saying, it's all hubris. The idea of being able to fight in two places at once, even if you can win, is hubristic today. The best absolute best situation that we could hope for would be a political compromise that ends the war and obviously that political compromise would be incredibly dependent on the situation that arises but something that leaves intact the governments of each country that's fighting the war and finds a modus vivendi to move forward um, from the conflict because i believe that in some respects uh, there is a little bit of a personality clash between, say, Donald Trump or even uh, President Barack Obama and these other countries. But I think to a larger extent, this is systemic. And these are countries who don't like the existing system. They want to change the existing system. The United States wants to keep the, well, kind of wants to keep the existing system. And that's always going to lead to clashes. That's just how it's going to work. So how do you find a way to work between that and, uh, I think that China, if, if you want to talk about that, China's kind of winning that already. They China is playing to change the rules of the game. They are saying, hey, we need rules of the game, but they are determining what the rules of the game are, and that means that there is a systemic clash between us. We need a modus vivendi to solve that. But when it comes down to it, every single issue in this RAND Corporation study has to be addressed diplomatically. There is nothing that needs to be addressed by increasing spending, by being more belligerent, by further deployments around the world. It is all diplomacy that solves this problem. It is systemic, and it is going to require all governments to talk to each other and to come to an agreement on how to move forward. Yeah, and I mean, for the diplo for the diplomatic side of things, I mean, that is substantially cheaper and you tend to get a much better long-term outcome. I mean, I was thinking throughout this entire discussion about, you know, the old uh, guns and butter adage, yeah. right? Like, yeah. you only have so much money and you can't always spend it all on weaponry. And I think the United States is starting to see that to some extent. I mean, 
We're looking at all of the internal political problems that you don't necessarily want to say, oh, just throw more money at it. But when you think of how much we're spending just on the military alone, um, some of, a lot of these programs could be implemented. A lot of the problems could be solved by shifting some of those funds. Not all of them, of course, and maybe not even a majority of them. But, you know, for the cost of an F's, you know, what are we at now? The cost of an F-35, uh, just one of those could probably fund, you know, a lot of college tuitions or a lot of Medicare expansions or, you know, whatever your project is that you want to achieve that would have meaningful impacts on people in this country and that they would actually be able to see the tangible benefits of, you know, some trade-off would have to be done there. And that, you know, by definition, decreases our military effectiveness and readiness. But some would say it has to be done since if you don't have a willing and onboard uh, domestic political coalition, then you really can't do anything in the foreign policy sphere to begin with. Um, So one thing I did want to go into... um, regarding kind of this whole idea of like a world war three and you know a great military battle is the tactics that would be used and like the the things that nobody thinks about would actually still be very much in play so not just like you know military so tanks fighting tanks and planes fighting planes that sort of thing but there's just a whole vast array of technologies that could be used i mean there's economic warfare there's still the information warfare that we've talked about before so which now is not just informational warfare among the military sense, you know, because that's your classic like spy versus spy sort of thing. But now it really is going to be propaganda directed and targeted at the populations of these other countries. Um, Because that's one, that's one huge area that you can actually tap directly into the population of another country much more easily than you could before, or at the very least you could in the United States, um, China, it's going to be very difficult to reach that population since everything is state-controlled media there. Um, so that's a whole other sphere of, of military tools that could be used at a nation's disposal that can really alter the entire dynamic of a conflict, not just in the military Oh, sense. yeah, definitely. So I'm currently reading a book called The Future of the History of Warfare. If it sounds like a... Uh kind of a, a weird title it's because it is it is about about how uh humans have viewed since he starts in the uh what is it about the 1850s about how humans thought that war was going to be in the next say 20 years or so and how every single generation keeps thinking oh well this is going to be different this is going to be different this is going to be different and as fallout is want of saying war war never changes when it comes to the future of war for us and like what this war would be fought like a world war three. Gosh, it would really depend on the scope and what we were fighting them. Right. Because I think everything would be integrated. There wouldn't be any independent campaigns. If you were about to invade a city, you'd first try to soften up their people by sending in disinformation. And then you were going to, you know, hack the uh, power plant, turn off the power plant. And then I don't know, you take, (sighs) use a laser satellite and blow up something. I, I don't know. Well, I was going to say the first thing that is going to go, and the military even acknowledges this, the first thing that would go in any great conflict between like the United States and China is the satellites. Mm -hmm. Like they're just going to blast those out of space, you know, as much as they possibly can to just disrupt things. Which is unfortunate because, I mean, that much space debris up there, it's... The concept is sound. Yeah. You blast all these out of the sky and space debris is going to rain down on people. And also, your phones really aren't going to work as well no. because the satellites are destroyed. So, well, and it's... if that's if that terrifies you guys, just think about that before you start beating the drums for war. So, and hopefully, 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 we have laser weapons at that point to take out these satellites and like either blind them or just cut them offline. Because if we actually do, and I know China has actually tested a anti-satellite missile and it tested it successfully and you blow those up in space, that debris is not just going to take out military satellites. It will take out civilian satellites. It'll take out research satellites. And that debris will be up there for the next 30, 40, 50, 60 years. 
and make it impossible for us to get back up there, impossible for us to get back the satellite communications that we had before. This war will have resounding long-term effects for the, I guess, future of communications. And another thing that we... um, So the one thing that I think that we also really take for granted is um, the idea of nuclear weapons. I mean, we, we assume deterrence, right? So everyone has nukes, or at least US, Russia, China, they all have nuclear weapons. So they're not going to use them at all under any circumstances. And I just don't think that's necessarily true. In a in a hot war situation like that, I think that there are definitely conceivable areas where these weapons could be used. Not necessarily on like a capital city. So I don't think that Beijing and DC and Moscow would trade nukes at each other because that would actually result in the complete and total annihilation of, you know, not just the enemy, quote unquote, but also the entire planet. But there are strategic uses of these that that could be theoretically used if we are at that point. I mean, the reason that we haven't used them is even though we've been in wars is because, you know, we're, we're up against much, uh, much smaller armies usually, or we just, we don't want to cross that threshold. I mean, technically we already did in World War II, but, but we don't want to recross that and think that it's okay to use these weapons, but it certainly could. I mean, military bases could be the targets of, to smaller scale nuclear weapons or, um, you know, other strategic points, maybe ones that don't necessarily have a large civilian population impact. Um, but we tend to think of that of nuclear weapons as basically irrelevant, that they're never going to be used again, but we should still have them for deterrence. But I think in this theoretical scenario, we need to think about they're very much at play in a limited sense here. Sure. I, I do agree with you, especially for, say, Russia. Russia, in their last white paper on defense that they wrote, had a proviso in there that they accept the use of uh, tactical nuclear weapons as a de-escalator in warfare. (laughs) Uh... Kind of boggles the mind a little bit there. But they basically go back to the NATO playbook on that, where current NATO forces could overrun Russia easily. And to stop that, you use tactical nuclear weapons. And that use of a nuclear weapon uh, against a overwhelming military force coming at you goes makes you uh, really consider your choices at that point and go, maybe we don't want to keep going at them. Uh, yeah, but I don't know. M- nuclear weapons are, gosh, they're just the black box of uh, strategic thought because we don't really know what effect they had on the world in general. So what we do know is that The idea of nuclear weapons came about in the 1920s. They were actuated in the 1940s and used in the 1940s. And in that usage, the world was able to view their, and I I don't say this lightly, but the awesome amount of violence that it was able to impact on any given target. And then, luckily, the United States, which had a... uh, monopoly on those nuclear weapons for the next i believe it was uh 10 years maybe it was seven years something like that yeah it wasn't quite 10. no it, but we did have a monopoly on those nuclear weapons and we had chances to use them especially in korea where the commanders were saying hey we need to use these nuclear weapons and the united states actively said no we will not use nuclear weapons in this conflict and the self-prohibition by a power with the only power on earth to have nuclear weapons to using those nuclear weapons created a norm at that time and that norm was nuclear weapons are not a tactical usage weapon they're not something that you just use in a battlefield just because of whatever you might you think you might be losing and that norm has now existed for what 70 80 years every year that 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 norm continues, it gets a little bit stronger. But as we're seeing with all these populist governments which are coming up, norms are not, I guess, Im- immutable. There are ways of getting around norms. and Sometimes it's just by ignoring their very existence. Sometimes it's uh, by tricking everyone around you. Um, but one way or another, they can be overcome. And that's kind of what I'm worried about, especially with everyone who advocates that nuclear weapons should be just removed from the scene completely. Well, I mean, if they're destructo weapons, 
Let's get rid of them. Well, in the era of great power competition, which we are in still, when you don't have a nuclear deterrent and you are at threat of nuclear war, other countries may see a nuclear war as winnable. And this comes down to, I believe it was George Kennan that talked about this. Um, if a nuclear war becomes winnable, then you, you're over that first hurdle of the usage of nuclear weapons. And all you have to deal with now is norms. It's not, well, you have to consider the strategic results. If we nuke them, they're going to nuke us and it's going to be a world-ending event. No, the United States doesn't have nuclear weapons. We have five nuclear weapons. So, therefore, conceivably, we could win this nuclear conflict. Yeah, and that's why, you know, that's why the idea of deterrence works so effectively is that everybody thinks that it works. Mm -hmm. And the moment that, well, the moment that you no longer think that deterrence is going to work in your favor, then, yeah, like you say, norms is the only thing left. And, I mean, at that point, if you're already at that point, you probably don't care much about norms anymore. Um, and that's that's why one of the one of the things is that, you know, even though we've just spent, you know, this this whole hour basically talking about how do we refocus our military effort and our military spending on things that make more sense, I think nuclear weapons is one of the things that actually does make more sense. That that's the type of thing. I mean, our our nuclear arsenal is is old. Yeah, it is. It is it is outdated and other nations are quickly catching up and finding ways to actually supersede us. I mean, what was it? Uh I think it was a couple weeks ago I heard that Russia had tested, and they said it was successful, but we're not entirely sure, but that they had tested a missile that just perpetually is in motion, that's just circles and circles and circles, but never actually lands anywhere, and can do that for, you know, days, if not weeks, if not months at a time. Um, and that's the type of thing that's, that's crazy, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, because <laughs> you could launch that, and then... As long as everybody gets over the whole, like, oh, you know, obviously they freak out at first, but then you just go, oh, no, 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 no. It just, it's just going to circle. It's not going to do anything. Then if everyone's okay with that, then suddenly they just have a missile spinning around that could drop on anyone in almost a moment's notice. Um, and so that's a strategic disadvantage for, for the United States and for the world in general. And so, um, you know, not saying that we should build something as crazy as that, but, um, I mean, pretty much all of the consensus in the international community, or I should say in the intelligence community, is our arsenal is vastly becoming outdated. And that's the type of thing that we need to not take that for granted that, oh, well, deterrence is just going to work, right? We have nuclear weapons and no one will ever use them, so why put money into it? But that's one of the things that I feel like does actually need to be considered because, you know, kind of as you said, sure, we're, we're right now, it's uh, a nuclear war is still unwinnable and even using them in a tactical limited sense is still probably unwinnable. Um, but it, we need to ensure that it is so. Yeah. And I agree. It's uh, so I am not a fan of building more nuclear weapons. I think that is redundant. I think that is, no, dumb. we have an insane amount yeah, as it exactly. is. But like, just like what you said, we have to update them. We have to go yeah. in there and we have to make sure that these weapons are for lack of a better way of putting it as deadly as possible and as hard to hit as possible because those are the two elements of deterrence right there and how about as effective as possible effective I, that's that's what they're deadly that's that's what they that's, are that's a much <laughs> but that's a much softer way of it is that. you're right um thomas schelling in his book uh arms and influence where he examines nuclear warfare a bit talks about all warfare in terms of violence and the end goal of any warfare, uh, not the end goal, but the modus of operating any war is through violence. You impact violence on civilians, you impact violence on other soldiers. It doesn't sound good, and honestly, I wish we used that more, so it didn't, didn't make war such a shiny object for everyone. And I think that's what we need the newer nuclear weapons as well, is that, I mean, that's, that their purpose is to impact violence. But that being said... I, even if you have a nuclear missile spinning in orbit constantly, which I think would be a red line for a whole bunch of people. Um, but that being said, if there was a, that sort of scenario going on, you would have to make sure that you had facilities which could launch those nuclear weapons that are nuclear weapons to respond to that. So they know, hey, you drop a nuke, 
you're going to get nuked. That's just how it's going to work. And submarine-based missiles are that, but I believe... what? How Do you remember how old the Ohio-class submarine is? It's old. Yeah, I don't recall. It is old. But, I mean, pr- the vast majority of the nuclear fleet is uh, rather old yeah, anyway. Yeah, it really is. And it's... Uh, <laughs> I... I think that if if there are major developments in nuclear weapons from other countries, then the United States needs to step up its development of newer types of nuclear weapons as well. But I also believe in the same regard that if other countries do not update their nuclear weapons, which obviously isn't happening with Russia's scram missiles, and uh, we, we have to keep focus. And it's not it's not how... The United States has viewed it as building more nuclear weapons. If you have 7 million nuclear weapons all stored at one storage site and that gets hit by a nuke, you have no nuclear weapons. That's just how... That's the calculus. That's the rash calculus of it. So you need... Like, yeah, I mean, that's, that's why second strike capability yeah. is what drives nuclear deterrence. Yeah, definitely. It's not, that, it's not that I have weapons. It's that I have weapons and can survive the first strike. Mm-hmm. That's what... That's what underpins all of deterrence. And so, and and that gets me back to the, like, the Russian idea that they can use nuclear weapons to de-escalate a conflict. And that really worries me. It really, really Yeah, and me. it, because it would, it, depending on how it's used, it could very much escalate the conflict, of course, but it could also de-escalate the conflict, right? Yeah. I mean, if there are tanks rolling into Russia... And they just well, it's like if you use nuke a nuke themselves nuke. a little bit, and it would work. So, like, here's a scenario for you: if you use nuclear weapons on your own territory against invading forces, is that still, is that still a uh, active nuclear use that demands deterrent retaliation? If it's used on your own yeah. territory, by this point, um, of course, NATO troops would be casualties as well. So, I think that would be pretty fair justification for uh, retaliation. Um, one of the scenarios I'm thinking of is, okay, so we have a much, much more powerful Navy than China, mm-hmm. right? Um, and we use that Navy to ensure the South China Sea remains, we say, quote unquote, open, but more or less as part of uh, something that we can also control. Um, what's to stop China from, you know, nuking the ships out to sea? Like that's, that's almost an even, uh, almost an even more reasonable, quote unquote, approach from their perspective, because there's not people living there. Well, it's not land. It's just it's just water and fish. Yeah. So, well, the one you know that's the thing... type of thing that that's that's the type of thing where there's that intersection between these different new types of conflict and methods of waging warfare that I feel like a lot of people are just discounting as you know unrealistic. Sure, and I, I will say like the one good thing for that scenario specifically, although I know what you're getting at, is that nuclear weapons don't work great on in water. So mm-hmm. it's that's just uh, we'd be a little bit lucky at that point because it wouldn't do near as much damage to the fleet as uh, I, it would be expected. But. Well, well, it'd be an air burst for one. I mean, of course, it wouldn't it wouldn't go underwater and detonate. No. That'd be yeah. silly. But no, and that's that was just a, it was at the uh, Bikini Atoll explosion, I believe. Yeah, and they tested mm-hmm. it on a couple ships that or ships that were out at there too, and it just didn't do near as much damage as they thought it would. But I understand what you're saying, definitely, and that's the complexities of the nu- use of nuclear weapons. I, it's, I think that the literature is actually falling behind the times on this. So, like, the Thomas Schelling Arms and Influence book that I referenced is from 1967, I believe. That is really old. And so, the current nuclear idea, so the current Foreign Affairs magazine is, Foreign Affairs, do nuclear weapons matter? The first... The first article says, no, they don't matter. And you have to sit there and go, it's no, that's not not really true. I don't care if you think they shouldn't matter, but they do. Yeah, it's it's literally on my desk right in front of me me this entire time. (laughs) I, I think that we are very much falling behind on these theoretical studies of the impacts of nuclear warfare, of cyber warfare, of all these other different types of warfare that you're pointing out here, that the RAND Corporation, circling back there, should be focusing on. This is what they should be looking at. They shouldn't be looking at whether the United States can win a two 
a two-front uh, war because, no, we can't. And you know what? Their report is right. We can't. But the recommendations that we should spend more money to be able to do that, that's stupid. What they should be looking at is what are the impacts of the normalization of nuclear weapons, the normalization of cyber warfare, the normalization of um, I mean, cyber warfare against civilian populations. Where where are all the major pieces of literature on these? Fight smarter, not harder. Very much, uh, yeah. Create norms in all of these uh, all these sectors where you can actually go and say, all right, well, this is generally what is accepted, and even if all countries don't use it, they'll pay attention to it, and they might know what you're thinking, so the risk of miscalculation decreases. Because I think that everyone, everyone listening to this podcast knows that if a country wants to just wants to attack someone, they're going to do it. There's very little in the way of uh, anything that can stop you. Deterrence, if you want to attack, it's like what Germany did in World War II. <laughs> If Germany wanted to invade Poland, even though that uh, the United Kingdom and France said, you attack Poland, we're going to attack you, they still attack Poland. You can't stop mm -hmm. those sorts of things. It's just impossible. What you have to be able to try to stop are the miscommunications. So the if Russia uses a nuclear weapon on its own territory against an invading force... Does that qualify? Does that mean that they are escalating the war to a nuclear status war? Or does that mean that they are using a nuclear weapon on their territory as a purely defensive measure and not to be looked at as an offensive measure? We should know that. And that's it for this episode of the Orientalist Express podcast. I'd like to thank our guest, Stephen, for his insight and analysis, as well as our listeners and readers of the blog. Be sure to check out our website at orientalistexpress.com like and share in our Facebook group, or tweet us at OrientalistExp. Our podcast is also available on Stitcher and iTunes, or you can subscribe to our RSS feed, which is hosted by Squarespace. Thanks again, and we'll see you next time.